Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be part of the Sparkfile coaching community? Here's how the Sparkfile community describes it. The most honest, safe, life-affirming, and life-changing experience I've had in all my 55 years. The best. I'm incredibly grateful to Laura and Susan for teaching me the tools and structures that I need to get past the fear and to just do it anyway. The Spark File is a portal to your creative powers and believing in yourself. This group is spiritually, emotionally, mentally supportive, creative, amazing, encouraging, life-shifting, and liberating uber talented warm thoughtful lovely wonderful people i need a group like this to give me the kick in the ass that i need to start making the things that i want to make and do there's a big beautiful creative trampoline that just like catches you gently and just launches you out with so much love if you want to learn more about the spark file creativity coaching including our six-month blaze course visit the sparkfile.com slash blaze and schedule a no pressure no obligation call to find out what is possible and how we can support you it's time to take it and make it the spark file podcast may contain profanity and other adult content please use your discretion When I bump into something that inspires me, I dump it in my spark file. To be something that I want to make or how I want to be, I pump it in my spark file. I jump into my spark Let's open up the spark Welcome to the spark file where we believe that everyone is creative but smart creative people wicked smart creative people don't go it alone i'm laura camion and i'm susan blackwell and we are creativity coaches who help people fear less create more and bring their creative visions to life if you're an og member of the spark file community welcome back sparkler if you're joining us for the first time, ah, oh, welcome, friend. Know that just by listening to this podcast, you are joining a warm and wonderful clan of creatives. But hold up a second. You might be asking yourself, what exactly is a spark file? A spark file is a place where you consistently collect all your inspirations and fascinations. And if you're like us and making stuff all the time, or you want to be making stuff all the time, you know that if you're not careful, your little campfire of creativity can flicker out. But do not despair. We're collecting kindling in the form of fresh ideas, images, and inspiration that spark creativity and peak curiosity. To light a fire under our collective asses to make things like this podcast. Or a whole new line of inquiry that opens up a whole new world of possibilities. Whoa, whoa, uh -huh. whoa. Uh -huh. Every episode, we're going to reach into our spark files and exchange some sparks. And from time to time, we're going to talk to some folks who spark us too. That means we have more sparks than we can possibly use in this lifetime, people. So if something lights you up, we encourage you to take that thing and make something out of it. So without further ado, let's open up the Spark, spark Fiala. That when I said, when I went, whoa, 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 whoa. that whoa. always reminds me of the Sparkfile team captain, Thomas Schulteis, who when I make some crack about like your mom's butt or something, he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. too far. You've taken it. That's a bridge it too, too far. far. Whoa. Cam's. Blackwell, I am about to spark you. Oh, I reached into my spark file, not not super far back into my spark file, honestly. Mm, but are you ready for it? A shallow it? reach. It's yes. a shallow reach. Yeah. Yes. It was right there on top. Right oh. on top. Yeah. Just right on top of the cookie jar. Okay, listen, I I I guess this is like partial spark, partial confession. You know, uh -oh. I like to get things off my chest. Uh oh. <laughs> I was just reflecting back of the last, you know. 18 plus months at this point. And I realized that I have surprised myself with some of my recreational choices during this challenging and uncertain time, Suze. I have no idea where you're headed with this. I like that. I like that. I 
I guess I was thinking about like, here we are, or here we were, or here we are in the midst of a global pandemic. Let's say here we are. Present tense, here we are. Present tense, here we are in the midst of a global pandemic. And during this time, I chose to truly lean into it by reading and consuming pandemic-related books and TV shows. Yeah, yeah. Why? I do not know. I I really do not know. I have a theory about this because I I was listening to something the other day and they were talking about how during a pandemic, why is it that people are either drawn to that or repelled by it? You were drawn to it. Well, yeah, but I've actually parceled out a few distinctions that we'll discover in this spark. But uh, please tell me more about what you read. This is my feeling. I can understand. I, I just sidebar. I was doing an episode of a television show. The producers of this show had made a choice that the pandemic was going to be woven into the fabric of the reality of this TV show. You know, there's plenty of TV shows that are filming right now that don't include that. But this particular show, I've shot three TV shows during the pandemic. This particular show was fully, we were masked, we were in a a courtroom setting. And I was talking with some of the people that make that TV show. And they were saying that people were resistant because they were like, when I am on my couch at night, at the end of my pandemic-tastic day, and all that that means, remote learning for my children, remote working for me, potentially having to work but with a mask on or commuting with a mask on, they're like, I don't need all that up in my favorite TV program. So I think there are people like that that are resistant. And then I think there are people that It's a little bit like a scuba diver who's going down and you need to balance your internal pressure with your external pressure. So the internal wants to align with the external. And I think you're one of those people that you're like, I'm living this and I want maybe not 100% escapism all the time. I want to attune with the realities of this. That's my hypothesis. I think that's interesting. It may be completely off the mark, but... so. I think there are some distinctions in terms of um, pandemic-related entertainment. But what I can say is that, you know, it was worth an investigation to me. Apparently, it wasn't enough for me to get, like, firsthand experience with empty grocery store shelves or real-life toilet paper shortages. (laughs) It wasn't enough for me to stress out when we were told there's a potential for violence and stock up on water and canned goods because evil people will go for our water sources and our electrical grid first. Oh no, my vivid imagination was clearly not enough. I dove fully into it by merging my imagination with others who had put in the work to put down on paper entire worlds full of crumbling civilizations, global annihilation, general pandemic devastation. That is what I went for. For entertainment, Suze. For entertainment. Huh. So the first book that I read, really the summer of 2020, was Station Eleven. And I might have mentioned this briefly in the podcast previously, so please enjoy my second take here. (laughs) But if you don't know it, Station Eleven was a national bestseller written six years prior to the pandemic in 2014 by Emily St. John Mandel. And it was an interesting take on the collapse of civilization. It didn't over-explain or try to solve anything. It just kind of dropped you into the world of a post-pandemic America, specifically around the Great Lakes region, actually. Here's the official description of the book. Kirsten Raymond will never forget the night Arthur Leander, the famous Hollywood actor, had a heart attack on stage during a production of King Lear. That was the night a devastating flu pandemic arrived in the city, and within weeks, civilization as we know it came to an end. Twenty years later, Kirsten moves between the settlements of the altered world with a small troupe of actors and musicians. They call themselves the Traveling Symphony, and they have dedicated themselves to keeping the remnants of art and humanity alive. But when they arrive in St. Deborah-by-the-Water, they encounter a violent prophet who will threaten the tiny band's existence. And as the story takes off, 
moving back and forth in time and vividly depicting life before and after the pandemic, the strange twist of fate that connects them will all be revealed. What? Now, I'm not going to reveal any more here because I wouldn't do that to you. Seriously, no spoilers, especially because it turns out that Station Eleven is being made into a limited series on HBO Max, and it comes out on December 16th, 2021. Prestige television. Right? So even if you do not want to read the book, we can enjoy this delightful tale together through the magic of television. For real, though, it is going to star Mackenzie Davis, who I loved in Halt and Catch Fire. Did you ever watch that show? I dipped a toe in like the first episode, but didn't, I did not catch fire with that show. I enjoyed it very much. The show was about the beginning of the computer age. Uh And fun fact, we shot an episode um, with Blue Man. We filmed a scene for that show because it was set at a party in the 1990s. Oh, like a really big time tech guy. Oh my um, God. Who wanted, you know, like the coolest thing at his party. So it was perfect. And it also stars Haimish Patel, who I loved in the movie Yesterday. He was also in Tenet. So I can safely say, given my admiration of both of these two artists and my history with pandemic entertainment, I'm pretty sure I'm going to tune into this on HBO. Pandemic entertainment. Is that truly a genre? No. I mean, I'm talking about it as such. I, I mean, I, I feel like you're on to something. So, by the way, the San Francisco Chronicle called Station Eleven, quote, a superb novel that leaves us not fearful for the end of the world, but appreciative of the grace of everyday existence. So. That's a beautiful pull quote for the back of its oh, dust they, jacket. She got a thousand of them. Amazing. It was a bestseller. It was like an award-winning book. The thing that's so interesting about your description of it is that it kind of brings together several themes that you are fascinated by, the arts and culture, of course, like that it kicks off in a theater and and whatever that hunger that you have to consume pandemic related. And I will remind you that you are the person who before this whole COVID-19 thing ever kicked off, you were you had in your spark file previously real life pandemic related. That's true. The Spanish flu. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So, so both fictionalized and completely real world based entertainment and writing, not just entertainment, but also historical writing. You have, you come by this honestly, and even before we'd ever heard COVID-19. And this is an interesting thing that you just said, because the next book that I dove into was another bestseller, Lawrence Wright's novel, The End of October. This one I was fascinated with because Wright was literally in the midst of writing a book about a flu pandemic when a pandemic broke out. Now, I suspect, and there was actually a moment in the book that I was like, oh, this is the moment that his publisher was like, y'all better get a move on with this book because a pandemic is on the way. And he (laughs) quickly finished it and put it out. I honestly could probably tell you the page that I was on. And I was like, oh, Okay. Yeah. So we kind of hustled really? from this point on, but yeah, wow. but he's still an incredible writer. He's a staff writer for the New Yorker and the end of October is his 12th book. He also wrote the looming tower, which became a limited series. He wrote going clear, which inspired the documentary on HBO and many, oh, many shit. more. And he does the thing that you're talking about, like, like, He's got nonfiction and he's got fiction, but all of his fiction is kind of based in, I wouldn't call it historical fiction, but it is all informed by the knowledge and the research that he's done of like what has really happened in the world at various times. Interesting. So the official description of the end of October reads, at an internment camp in Indonesia, 47 people are pronounced dead with acute hemorrhagic fever. When epidemic epidemiologist Henry Parsons travels there on behalf of the World Health Organization to investigate, what he finds will have staggering repercussions. Halfway across the globe, the deputy director of U.S. Homeland Security scrambles to mount a response to the rapidly spreading pandemic leapfrogging around the world, which she believes may be the result of an act of bio-warfare. 
and a rogue experimenter in man-made diseases is preparing his own terrifying solution. As already frayed global relations begin to snap, the virus slashes across the United States, dismantling institutions and decimating the population. With his own wife and children facing diminishing odds of survival, Henry travels from Indonesia to Saudi Arabia to his home base at the CDC in Atlanta, searching for a cure and for the origins of this seemingly unknowable disease. The end of October is a one-of-a-kind thriller steeped in real-life political and scientific implications, filled with the insight that has been the hallmark of Wright's acclaimed nonfiction and the full-tilt narrative suspense that only the best fiction can offer. Now, Wright is super clear about the end of October being a complete work of fiction, but it is a little bit spooky. It's a little bit weird, the number of connections. But he says in an article in the New York Times, he wrote, my new novel, The End of October, is a work of imagination. The book is not prophecy, but its appearance in the middle of the worst pandemic in living memory is not entirely coincidental either. It began with a simple question from the filmmaker Ridley Scott, who had read the post-apocalyptic 2006 novel, The Road, and asked me, what happened? How could human civilization become so broken? How could we fail to preserve the institutions and social order that define us when we are confronted with something unexpected, a catastrophe that in retrospect seems all but inevitable. This is not the outcome I anticipate for the current coronavirus pandemic. In my writing the book, however, I've come to appreciate that we would be naive and prideful to believe we have escaped the snares of disease that nature is constantly devising. So first of all, I love the fact that he just spells out the spark that generated the fire that became this book. I love that. Anytime now, I'm so attuned to it because we do this podcast, but anytime somebody spells it out, I love hearing it. I love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Like that's what it was. It was some conversation with Ridley Scott that got his mind going. And I do believe that sometimes it can be a simple question, an investigation of how could this happen or what if this happens? I actually think we're living in a time when these ideas are literally everywhere, just right under our freaking noses, especially since news has become so editorialized. Just tuning into the news can give you ideas for what ifs. For example, the threats to democracy lead a lot of people to project into the future what this event might lead to, or if this continues, you can imagine it going down this path. And I think that people like Lawrence Wright have a real skill in listening for that and then projecting forward and creating a world comprised of those what ifs. In fact, interestingly enough, the end of October is not the first time that Wright predicted the future with his fiction. In that same Mm. New York Times article, he said, I've been accused of being uncannily prescient before. In 1998, The Siege, a movie I co-wrote, addressed a similar question. What would happen if terrorism came to America, as it already had to London and Paris, not to mention Tel Aviv? What if it happened in New York? The movie, which starred Denzel Washington and Annette Bening, supposed that radical Islamists were behind the attacks. It was a box office bust, but after 9-11, it became one of the most rented movies in America. Oh, boy. He goes on to say, what might seem like prophecy is actually the fruit of research. And this is this dynamic we're talking about. As a writer, I've always been more surprised by reality than by imagination. So I try to hew to science, history, and human experience. In both the siege and the end of October, I examined what had happened in similar episodes in the past. I spoke to experts who could guide me to create a plausible narrative from facts that would resonate with the fiction on the screen and on the page. Pandemics, like wars and economic depressions, which they often coincide with, leave scars on the body of history. So much of the story of civilization that has been about our struggle to survive in close quarters with one another, which allows pathogens 
to proliferate. So basically he's saying like he read up on what various plagues have done to societies throughout time and then imagined what if he learned about all of these close calls we had with SARS, with MERS, and imagined a world where what if, which is truly, this is why I think I might get passionate about this stuff. It's one of my favorite things to do. Like you can take any moment in history and ask yourself, what if? Well, as you're talking, as you described, Laura, and will you say it again? You described that sort of intersection between history. Yes. Um, history, science, and human experience. Okay. History, science, and human experience. Well, as you were describing that, I was like, this spark is so far up your alley. It is. It is. It's really at the intersection of these things that fascinate you. And I can totally tap into what you're talking about, how if you can kind of look to the past and really attune with those things and kind of like dig in, dig deep, read, talk to people who are experts in those areas, you can sort of start to extrapolate how history might repeat itself and what forms that might take. And so I can see why people would call him prescient, you know? And it's so, I'm like, yes, Laura Camion Spark. Yes. Yes. So I started to see some, you know, patterns, obviously, but essentially... I think like one of the takeaways is that if you're looking for sparks, like you can truly consider everything that you hear on the news or read on Facebook. You really can look no further than history and reimagine the ending or look no further than this very exact present moment and imagine the craziest, most astonishing possibility for what comes next. You know what I love about this too, Laura? I love that sometimes watching the news or reading the news can be so draining and it can be upsetting and it can can really like look down the path and it can be just like scary. And I feel like with this, it's the potential to have a little bit of a creative remove so you can take the information in like a responsible human, but also when you marry it to creativity in a positive way, it could add a little bit of uplift and possibility. If that, does that make sense what I'm saying? It makes total sense to me. And, and I'm going to talk a little bit in a minute about some very concrete ideas that gave me a different feeling about some things I've heard on the news. Oh, nice. I like it. So yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you. Yes. So after these books, then I did something really kind of nuts and I'm a little embarrassed to admit. I think I've told you on the podcast, like I'm not really big into zombies. I never got into The Walking Dead, like for a variety of reasons. I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Zombie apocalypse, yada, yada, big deal. Except for like World War Z, which I thought was really smart, kind of based in the same things that Lawrence Wright is about. And I found fascinating. But during these insane times, I kind of got over myself and I was like, this show is technically about a pandemic. Maybe I should go ahead and check it out. Suze, there are literally like 10 plus seasons of this show like 10 years worth of shows. It's a lot of content available to you. So much. Yes. And their seasons are like 16 episodes long. Like these are long seasons. This was a real commitment. That is a long season. Yes. But you know what? I dove into it. You know, me being right on top of the trends. I dove into (laughs) it. I have to say a lot of it is really good. There, of course, were seasons just like any show, like, you know, Game of Thrones, where you're like, okay, this show's kind of lost its way. This isn't the season for me. Uh huh. But I would just kind of like roll with those and have them playing in the background. But I stuck with it overall. And the thing that I realized that all these things have in common, besides what we've already identified, the science and history and human experience connection. But I also think that the thing that engages my brain is this exploration of like human behavior when the stakes are life and death. Like this show goes from we have to fight the zombies to we have to figure a way to survive on our own. And you do know I like survival shows. We know how to fight the zombies, but now we have to fight the other human beings. It really begins to explore how you start civilization from scratch again, 
What would you keep? What would you lose? How would you decide? And who decides? And I'm really not interested in the violence whatsoever, but I am interested in those human dynamics and the what ifs of it all. What if you were trying to stay alive in the woods and someone comes to steal everything you have, the things that keep you alive? You would effectively die without these things. Under what circumstances would it be okay for you to kill them? If keeping one, just one person alive risks the well-being of a group of people, what obligation do you have to protect that one life? Like it really upends everything we think we have all tidied up. You know, we think like it's crystal clear. The rules of engagement are clear and it upends all of that. And I guess I just really love that exploration of human dynamics, particularly when those stakes are life or death. Side note on that, although this is not about the pandemic, Squid Games was a similar exploration. What would you do if it was truly life or death? It's you or the person standing in front of you. And the answer is that people do really fucked up things when it comes to survival. Really fucked up. Did you watch Squid Games? I did. You did. You watched it all. I watched it all. I mean, we started the first episode and I was like, I don't like it. I didn't like the main character. It was really kind of annoying. And then I read an article and I was like, okay, I'll try it again. And it, the dynamic changed into more of what I just described. Oh, and I just, it's, it's just not my temperature. I'm like tootling over to the Netflix tile with the great British baking competition. Um, Totally. Yeah. Did you like, like hunger games? I read those books and I didn't make it through all the movies. The dystopian stuff, I don't know. It just has to be the right combination of things. Lord of the Flies. Did you like that? I never read it. I never read it. I'm so busted. You didn't do your homework. I don't remember a syllabus in my life that included that book. And I didn't read it for pleasure. No, I don't remember it ever being assigned. Did you like Lord of the Flies? I mean, what I remember of it, but you know my memory. But I get, you know, I remember the concept very clearly. It's a bunch of kids on an island and fucking figure it out. Fuck around and find out. There's usually in these stories the thing that I cannot take, which is where you and I might have to shake hands and agree to go our separate ways, which is there's usually a torturous cruelty that comes into play at some point. Yeah, I don't like that. But I'm able to like, just walk out of the room, come back in after it's done. I'm like, I get the point. It burns itself onto my retina. Yeah. And if I have any spare mental capacity, my mind goes straight to it. Yeah. I won't, wa- I won't look at the images of torture. That's that so same like Game of Thrones season that we're, I'm sure, both thinking of that was like, I don't need this. This is not for me. I swear, you know, we were in select group in the Sparkfile select group. Uh, we were, uh, we're still in creativity shares right now. And the participants in the group are doing their shares and um, just remaining confidential so as not to betray any trust. There was some, someone who is sharing some work that has sort of um, familiar images and iconography that you know, if you grew up in the Catholic church and I was thinking when they were sharing the stories and the images of Christ on the cross were so upsetting to me as a child. I could not, I really took it to heart and I couldn't believe how cruel it was that somebody would be tortured and killed that way. And so from a very young age, I just have a very low tolerance. And we've talked about like, I just think it's part of me being a sensitive soul. Thank you, Maida Wagner's Five Creative Types. I come by it. My dad's the same way. Like it, it's just, it's too much. It's too much. I mean, it's interesting because I, I too am a sensitive soul and I just don't look at it. Like I will, I'm not kidding. Like I'll walk out of the room or you can look away yeah, or look away. Um, sometimes even fast forward, like if it's enough, there's a particular season in the walking dead that I was like, this is just like, it's disgusting and it's not even serving a plot point in it. Did you get all the way through? I did. Laura, how do you have time for this? This is what I'm saying, though. I would like certain seasons, I would sort of fall asleep to them and then wake up the next day and was like, oh, I guess three episodes went by, but uh, that's okay. I'll just pick. I'm pretty sure I could pick up where I left off. You know what I mean? That happened to me on the Bake Off, too. Yeah. Yeah. I woke up and I was like, how are we making profiteroles? How did I miss this? (laughs) How did we get to this? We were shaping bread into octopi and now we're on. I don't know what it evolves to. I was going to say, and now we're on 
this, but I don't know how it evolves in baking. So that's how really, that's how I got through a lot of seasons. So in fairness, I'm sure I missed a good amount, but I got the gist of it. Got it, got it, got it, got it. You know, there were some seasons where I was like, this is really good. But yeah, just this idea of like, when the stakes are that high, what will people do? And the answer is that people do really fucked up things when it comes to survival. And we're sort of living comfortably in the like, but I have food and I have water and I have a roof over my head. And it's very hard to imagine what I might do for the last piece of bread on earth, you know, yes, came to that. So, but people do fucked up things. And actually now that I have said that, maybe this does have more to do with the times we're living in than I think, because if you can convince people that something is life or death, you may be able to get them to believe some rather unbelievable things or behave in some rather erratic ways. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to keep working on that theory, but I would be remiss right now If I did not mention something, I have to confess something else about The Walking Dead. And again, I am not proud of this. But in the spirit of transparency, I feel like I have to admit that I prejudged the actor who plays Daryl Dixon on The Walking Dead, Norman Reedus. Oh, Norman Reedus. Norman Reedus. Yeah, I'm familiar with Norman Reedus. Have not watched the show, so I don't know the character. Okay. So for the past 10 years, when I wasn't watching the show, I'd seen the ads and the commercials and all that stuff. And he just looked so like unshowered and like he'd been at the bar until 4 a.m. Like the person, the actor, not the character had been at the bar. He looks like someone in a band. I always think, oh, you look like somebody like in a country band or something. Someone in a band who drinks every night after the show. Like I made some real assumptions. And of course I knew that the images I was seeing of him were in character. But I'm going to be honest, I had a little bit of an attitude of like, okay, okay, everyone is dirty and dingy. I get it. And I don't know what all the fuss is about this guy. Honestly, Susan, shame on me. Shame on me. What do you know? First of all, it was just obnoxious to prejudge. And I'm so sorry. But also shame on me for being so terribly wrong about him. Yes, he plays the character really, really well. Like so well that it's very easy to just assume that Norman Reedus is Daryl Dixon. Like I looked him up, he's from Florida. And I was like, okay, yeah, so he's Daryl. Like, got it. And I'm not saying he doesn't have some qualities that are similar. What the hell do I know? I don't even know this guy. But again, shame on me because I discovered that, first of all, he's lived all over the globe. The actor. The actor, Norman Reedus. Florida, Tokyo, Kansas for a tiny stint. Los Angeles, New York. Turns out, Suze, he's a painter a sculptor, a photographer. His artwork has been shown in galleries in New York and Berlin and Frankfurt and more. He had a modeling career prior to acting. He modeled for Prada and Levi's and Lexus. Wow. On and on. And in addition to The Walking Dead, he also has created a show called Ride with Norman Reedus, which really celebrates his love of motorcycles. But in the show, he like goes on long rides with different people and you get to know the person he's riding with. You get to know the small towns and the areas they ride through. In 2013, he released a book of photography called The Sun's Coming Up like a big bald head. And if you go to bigbaldgallery.com, you can find books, photos, merch featuring his work. Most recently, he released a book of photography called Portraits from the Woods, which is this big, beautiful book with the price tag to match. So it was out of reach for a lot of his fans. What did old Norman do? He also created a book of fan art, like a compilation of fan art that he personally selected. And the book is called Thanks for All the Niceness. And you can buy that book for like 30 bucks. And the outpouring from his fans is crazy. This is a story for another day, but he's got some secret recipe for like, number one, the most rabid fan base. But also it seems like so much of it has to do with his engagement with them, which by all accounts feels really sincere and what? Authentic. Like fucking authentic. It's really fascinating. On top of all this, Suze, 
I discovered he's currently writing a book of fiction. And he co-owns a restaurant in Georgia where they filmed The Walking Dead called Nick and Norman's. And during the pandemic, instead of closing the restaurant, they converted it to sell groceries and essential supplies so that he could keep his employees employed and continue to take care of the community. I mean, I'm not saying this guy is an angel. Again, I have no idea. He gets some shit done. He gets some shit done. I misjudged. This guy seems to be living a very full, creative life and caring for other human beings in the process. One more thing, just to drive home what a dick I was, okay? (laughs) One of the things that people often notice is that he wears sunglasses a lot of the times, you know, like in interviews or photos. And again, I think that can come off as... I was at the bar until 4 a.m., right? Or I'm like a famous douche. Or I'm a famous douche. Yeah, pick your poison there. But imagine my dismay when I read the real reason he wears them so often. This is from an interview he did on YouTube. He said, I have really sensitive eyes. With bright light, I just start tearing up. I always have, Rita said. I was in a car crash in Berlin maybe 10 years ago. No, before that. I was hit by a truck, an 18-wheeler truck, and I went flying through the window of the car and my eyeball popped out. (gasps) So they put me back together. I have a whole titanium eye socket right here and I have like four screws in my nose. But ever since, bright light really bothers me. So I wear sunglasses all the time. Uh, You never know what people are going through. The moral of this story is is don't be a dick, Laura I'm an asshole. Yeah. The moral of the story (gasps) is I'm an asshole. And also, we have no idea about people and what other people have gone through or are going through. Oh, my gosh. Laura. Seriously. Yes. I genuinely want to say... I'm sorry. Is this your official on-the-record apology to Norman Reedus? This is my official on-the-record apology to Norman Reedus, who it is unlikely I will ever meet. I don't but know. also to his fans who, like, love the guy, and I can see why. I want to say, like, I'm so sorry. I'm an absolute fan of his acting ability. He plays Daryl Dixon with such heart. Is is that character, like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is it, like, he's morally ambiguous? In a world where we're, we have to kill other people just to stay alive, I guess your question of good guy or bad guy is really depends on if you're on the receiving end of his crossbow or standing behind him when he shoots the crossbow so for many many seasons he probably had like four words an episode and those words might be like someone says to him all right daryl you're with me and he says and i'm telling you in these like tiny little grunts and one words he builds this fan base because people i really think it's two things one it's a broken person that different people are like you can tell the urge to like fix and heal him is there but also can people like graft themselves onto the character i think it's a little bit more of like they can imagine this character protecting them and making them feel safe in a world where it's very difficult to feel safe So they've built the show now, and I think he's getting a spinoff after this show ends, but they've built it around this idea that everything's going to be okay because Daryl's here. And Daryl knows how to take care of business. He totally knows how to take care of business. But God, you're almost making me want to watch the show. For his performance, Susan, I did not expect that I would say this to you, but for his performance, it'll take time for you to see the arc because it's like a they play long game with this arc. Of yeah. His. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing. It's truly amazing. It's the kind like when you stop watching a show and you're like, I, I miss my friends. Wow. You know Laura. what I mean? They'll, I'm like, I miss I miss my friends. But I think that my this effusiveness about him right now is like, obviously, I misjudged his character and, and his abilities on that show. But to read about his commitment to creativity in so many forms. Yes. He doesn't have to do any one of those things. He, I'm sure, has tucked away enough money from this show to just be like, I'm all set. But instead, he's out there like taking photos, 
doing gallery shows of his photos, creating another TV show that just allows him to like ride his motorcycle. That's not my thing, but I celebrate the fact that he obviously is like, how can I do more of the things that I love? That I love. Oh my God. You know how much I love that. Also, just as a tiny, tiny side spark, you said his book of photography is called Sun's Coming Up Like a Big Bald Head. Yes. That's the first line of a Laurie Anderson song that I love. Come on. And that he knows right? and loves, obviously is referencing Laurie Anderson, who is just like a great musician and performance artist. That is delicious. Again, I don't know the guy. So I don't want to go from like misjudging him negatively to like making a saint out of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think what I'm so sparked by, again, is that full body commitment to a life of creativity. Yes. Of- one that is seemingly not driven by money. You know, it seems driven by I'm going to follow my bits of intrigue and follow along this path to see, you know, what's interesting over here. And here's a little spark of something. So I just really appreciate that. I appreciate the way he seems to encourage others and expresses appreciation for his fans. And, and that is my personal essay. On Daryl Dixon slash Norman Reedus. <laughs> oh my God. The end. How did we get here? How did we get here? So back to the topic at hand, I noted that all the pandemic content, and I think this is important, Suze, because I think you may have a theory, but this, this is where it may or may not hold water. I noted that all the pandemic content that I had consumed and enjoyed during the pandemic was created prior to the actual pandemic. Interesting. Which leaves me questioning, do we write about what we are experiencing now? Do people want to hear it or see it? Will that, which, you know, I know many a television show, as you've mentioned, is grappling with that. Do people want that? Will the perspective of living through a real pandemic make for better entertainment about pandemics? Or is the fiction version more interesting? Of course, there's going to be books and plays and movies and documentaries and musicals, all of it, all of it about these times that we just lived through and currently are living through. In fact, there was just a show at New York Theater Workshop called Christina Wong Sweatshop Overlord. Now, I hope by the time this episode airs that I will be able to snag some tickets to that show. But at the time of this recording, I have not yet seen it. I've only read about it. In an article in Vulture by Helen Shaw, she wrote writes an incredible review. I won't read the whole thing, but trust me when I say it is full of praise for Christina Wong and her work. Helen says, so here it is, a show about the COVID era. We knew it was coming. How could it not? But it's also an interesting test for theories about the palatability of something so relevant. Some folks have said they don't want to see any pandemic plays. Others have said that they hope that our artists are the ones to help us understand and think about what we've been through. I'm in both camps on alternating days. And in an unscientific poll of the single person I saw it with, I found that some folks do still find our near history too painful to watch, even when it's presented with such brio. I didn't have that reaction. I was impressed through and through. But even for those whom the work stings, it's still clearly a valuable archive of the experience. Yes. Wong has stopped sewing masks, but she's taken on another burden, that of living witness. We ought to put her in the Smithsonian. Yes, the future will remark, this is how it was. Oh, amazing. So what do we make of it, Suze? I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with writing a historical record of what we've gone through, especially if you have a unique perspective on it. But a fiction-based take on a major historic event, such as a pandemic, may be more powerful. You could write The Man in the High Tower by asking yourself, what if Hitler had won World War II? You could write Bird Box by asking yourself, what if your worst fears could manifest in physical form and facing your fears meant certain death. All right. Bird Box is another one. We'll never watch it, but I think I get the gist of it. But yes, Uh yes, yes. You can write The Handmaid's Tale by asking yourself, what if 
a totalitarian society took over the United States and treated women as property of the state. Given how the creative takes on a pandemic that were written prior to a pandemic spoke to me, I'm also curious about imagining a world just beyond this one. What might all of this lead to? If you take the news, like we're talking about the news, and you ask yourself this what if question every time, what if the vaccine really does have a tracking device in it? <gasps> Where does that story lead? What if our collective untreated PTSD results in dire circumstances of some kind? What if the people who stormed our Capitol on January 6th had actually taken our VP or Speaker of the House captive? Oh, my God. What if they had overturned the vote of the people? What if JFK Jr. actually does show up alive next weekend? There's so much to work with fiction-wise. What might seem like a crazy conspiracy just might make for fantastic science fiction. And who knows, maybe making something creative out of it is the way to cope with all of it. As Helen Shaw wrote in Vulture, Hamlet said that the theater's purpose was to show the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. And I see extraordinary opportunities all around us to illustrate the body of the times we live in or might one day live in, particularly if we ask ourselves the question, as Lawrence Wright did and Emily St. John Mandel did, the question, what if? Shit. Laura. Shit. And that is how you spark a spark. Listen, so many of the things that you're talking about, I think I could read them. Don't think I could watch them. Again, there's something about the visual yeah. component yeah, that's for tough sure. that I can take in in um, the written form for some reason, but it is a fascination. And it also, there's something about it that I might have to be like, good for you, not so much for my nervous system. Well, sure. I mean, I don't think that I also, like, I just knowing you as I do, I wouldn't put you on a list of like potential science fiction writers. That's right. But I think there are some sparklers out there listening. And I do think that this is, it's such fertile territory. And if you are somebody like you, Laura Camion, who sort of your passions do lie at the intersection of the aforementioned, like, I'm going to get this wrong, but sort of history, human behavior and nature, science, like that is a great swirl up. That is a great swirl up. I like all that stuff. I mean, I have a couple of like concrete ideas swirling. I've never Ooh. thought of myself as writing science fiction either. But I do have to say this imaginings, whether I ever write anything or not about them, imagining the news and some of these conspiracy theories, it has helped me cope a little bit. Like instead of me raging, like how can people actually be concerned that there's like a tracking chip in in the vaccine when they're being tracked by the chip in their phone anyway? <laughs> like what exactly. is, yeah. I could drive myself crazy with that or you can maybe make something I can imagine, it. yeah, what if, what if they're right? I could write a story that is like, me waking up 10 years from now, eyes opening and like, oh, we're living in a world where we're being tracked by this little shot in our arm. What does all that mean? Yeah. Yeah. I I love it. You know, you and I have talked about, eh, I can't remember if we've talked about it on the podcast before, because what? It's season three. It's My season memory three. doesn't go back that far, friends. But I, I this concept that we've talked about when we talked about when we have talked about thought work and for example, Brene Brown talks about you look at someone or something that you really love, like a child sleeping or a pet that you adore, your spouse. Sometimes when you're filled with love for that thing, the next thought can be, oh my God, I'm so afraid I'm going to lose them. But maybe a more productive, useful thought might be, I love them so much. And my next thought is how grateful I am that we get to have this time together. What you're describing is kind of a variant on that thought work, which is, well, this is a fucking nightmare dumpster fire shit show. But instead of just being, you know, just sinking into 
kind of a depression or like a fear about, you know, what the knock-on effects of something might be. Instead, letting your brain track to what might I make of this? What might I write? What screenplay? What historical fiction or science fiction? Like, what could this inspire? I feel like is it's just there's more possibility and uplift in there for me. And I think sometimes great things are created out of those sort of conflicts and those things that keep us up at night. I think so too. And you're essentially wrestling power back from it. Whereas one version is like, it's taking you on a roller coaster ride and a scream fright fest as you imagine the terror that could be around the next turn. The flip side of that is, oh, wait, you could take this idea and you could craft the story that's going to take place that you're in control of and, you know, you get to decide what becomes of this. So it's essentially using your imagination for the power of good. This is actually pointing me in the direction of another spark for another day, but here's a sneak preview of that spark. And again, have we talked about this on the podcast before? Maybe. Maybe. Uh, Stephen King, I remember reading an interview with Stephen King decades ago. Yeah. And the interviewer asked if Stephen King had ever written anything so scary that even he couldn't stand to like bring a good question. Have we talked about this before? I feel, it feels familiar, but I don't remember the answer, which is the joy of talking to me. The Between the two of us and the Swiss cheese faultiness (laughs) of our memory, we make the perfect discussion partners. This happened the other day in the Sparkfile Creativity Lab, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's for our select group where we gather on an evening and people can just like be in a quiet library-like atmosphere making stuff or people can be like doing like their stand-up or singing, like working stuff out on their feet in front of people. And we were having a conversation in the office hours and we were talking about writing memoir. And I was like, I think I might've done a spark about, and everybody in the group was like, you are a ding dong. You totally did a spark (laughs) about this. And before I knew it in the chat was the link to it. And I was like, (laughs) I, I also think that when you process this much information and this many sparks, I feel like sometimes I just can't contain it all in my mind. I also said it and forget it. If I actually sat around thinking about the things that I've said, I could, you know, just obsess and drive myself crazy. So I just record the podcast and then say, bless and release. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So I almost forgot. But what I was saying is back to Stephen King when he was asked, have you ever written anything that was so scary that even you, like, you couldn't continue on or you couldn't um you couldn't handle it and this decades ago he said i've written something so scary it scares me so badly that i had to put it in a drawer but i have a suspicion what that was that he shelved for a while he actually finished what and do you i think, think it was i think i'm not sure but I think it might've been it because that deals with like central fears of like this thing will shape shift and take the form of whatever scares you the most. So it might've been that, but it might not have been. Uh, But I thought I so cannot engage with uh, horror as a visual medium, but as a younger person, I loved reading it and I can still listen to, I listen to a lot of true crime and I love it. I have talked about this before when our friend, Sparkfile team captain, Thomas Schulteis, will recount scary movies and TV shows to me. I love it like a ghost story. I can't take it like just like straight doses visually. But it makes me want to go back. And even though I can't face it directly, it makes me want to do a spark about these things that scare us, that scare the shit out of us. Scare the shit out of us. And what we can make out of them. You mentioned that you didn't want to watch Bird Box, but it's so interesting because it is literally your worst fears are like in a swirly black thing, but your fears are different than my fears, but it materializes in front of you as 
the thing that makes you shit your pants the most. So, but that, that is that why in bird box, you can't look at it. So you have to be blindfolded. If you look at it, you die. Oh my God. Well, that sounds awful. Sounds awful. But I also think how funny it is. It's almost funny to me when you break it down and you say it like someone in some writer's room was like, oh my God, I know we're always taught to like face our fears. What if facing our fears killed us? What if you actually looked at your fear directly at it and that's what killed you? Yeah. I mean, it's just a what if. It's just like a, the craziest what if, except that they found a way to make it a conceivable story. I remember when everyone was watching that and I was like, not for me. Good for you. Not for me. Yeah. But I just think like there's tons of possibility, worlds of possibility in our imagination. And you can take those fears to build that imaginary world and you can be in charge of it. It also reminds me, just like a different take on that, is J.K. Rowling in Harry Potter, the Harry Potter series, where those Bogarts, I think, they were in that spells class and they would open them up and whatever they feared the most would manifest in front of them, but they were learning how to use their energy to dispatch it. Even though I thought that scene in the movie, the way that they depicted that, I can imagine if I was a little kid, that would have scared the shit out of me. Suze, you had mentioned that you had a theory about why I was reading pandemic stuff, but I wonder if your theory holds up given that I'm not actually into pandemic stuff that is about the pandemic we're living in, but rather was what people imagined a pandemic would be prior to being in a pandemic. I think my theory still holds up. I think that it's a way for you to edge really close uh, to sort of process some of the stuff that may be both consciously and subconsciously. Listen, I am not a doctor. (laughs) I am not a psychiatrist, but I do think, I think you're a highly sensitive person. I think that you benefit from that sort of processing. It's a way for you to process it without looking directly at the sun. That's what I think. Well, that's interesting because what is fascinating to me is that what people imagined it might be And still could be, by the way, because all of these are like went further than what we here, most of us here in the United States have um, have experienced, although I cannot vouch for other people in other countries having this experience of the coronavirus. But based on the knowledge we have from history, based on the knowledge from scientists, this is what is predictable. And to me, like when it has that connection to reality, just enough of a connection to reality, plus a heap of imagination. I find that really interesting. That's my spark. Laura, what if? Great spark. What if? I think that's it. I think that's it. Oh my gosh. This episode of The Spark File was made on the lands of the Lenape people. And as always, we hope that it put another bunch of sparks in your file. Laura, your spark spanned. That was such a wide spectrum of sparks. Listen, if there's a spark you'd like us to explore, or if you want to learn more about how to coach with us to bring your creative ideas to life, you can email us at thesparkfile at gmail.com or submit your inquiry through our website, thesparkbile.com. We will even happily take your feedback, but you know the price of admission. First, you must share a creative risk that you have taken recently. Just my favorite. You can follow us on social media at The Spark File, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and five-star review this podcast. If you are so moved, it really helps other listeners find us. Also, if you like this podcast, straight up share it with people that you love. And if you didn't like it, I wouldn't know because I do not read the comments, bitches. Oh, words. I don't. I don't. I know you don't. I know you don't. If something lights you up and gets your creative sparks flying, we are writing you a forever permission slip to make that thing. Make it. Make that thing yes. that's been knocking at your door. It's your turn to take that spark and fan it into a flame. You know you got to take it and, and make, make it. it. What if? Bye. What if? What if? Can I bump into something that inspires me? I dump it in my spark files. Could be something that I want to make or how I want to be. I pump it in my spark files. I jump into my spark files.
Let's open up the spark file. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be part of the Sparkfile coaching community? Here's how the Sparkfile community describes it. The most honest, safe, life-affirming, and life changing experience I've had in all my 55 years. The best. I'm incredibly grateful to Laura and Susan for teaching me the tools and structures that I need to get past the fear and to just do it anyway. The Spark File is a portal to your creative powers and believing in yourself. This group is spiritually, emotionally, mentally supportive, creative, amazing, encouraging, life shifting and liberating uber talented, warm, thoughtful, lovely, wonderful people. I need a group like this to give me the kick in the ass that I need to start making the things that I want to make and do. There's a big, beautiful, creative trampoline that just like catches you gently and just launches you out with so much love. If you want to learn more about the Sparkfile creativity coaching, including our six-month Blaze course, visit thesparkfile.com slash blaze and schedule a no-pressure, no-obligation call to find out what is possible and how we can support you. It's time to take it and make it.